Before we jump in today's episode, we just need to address really quickly, LA is a very hotbed of COVID right now. So Lisa and I have made the very wise decision to mask up while recording. Yes, so our sound might be a little different. Our voices might feel a little masked. But the energy (laughs) is still the same. Yes, we're being safe and healthy in here. So thanks for joining us and let's get started. This is Erased. I'm Colette Bowers-Zinn. And this is Lisa Johnson. Two Black moms bonded by bluntness, tenacity, and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support. Every Thursday, we're exploring where the intersections of education, race, and culture collide, dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive, despite being marginalized. Welcome. I am your co-host, Lisa Johnson. And I'm Colette Bowers-Zinn. And we are so happy to be back for season two of the Erased Podcast. Baby. Yeah, so how you doing, Colette? I'm here, sis. Yeah. How are you? I'm living the dream, said facetiously. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, it's funny. Instead of taking it day by day, I'm just taking it like 30 minutes by 30 minutes. (laughs) It's just that crazy. (laughs) I'm taking it news alert by news alert. Right, right. But you know, with the school year, half the school year is already gone. Yes, sir. New president against the backdrop of madness <laughs> in Absolute Washington. Absolute insanity. Craziness. Still lots of unjust acts of violence against black Americans and race relations clearly on the hearts and minds of so many of us. It's an understatement to say things feel crazy and otherworldly. And in terms of race relations, for me, mm-hmm. stagnant. And race relations in our schools, stagnant. Right? We're just waiting. That's what I mean when I say stagnant. I feel like we're in this pattern of waiting to see, waiting to see what the consultants that have been hired are going to recommend, waiting to figure out how COVID's going to impact the rest of the school year, just waiting. Do you feel that way? Um, yes and no. I'm not really one to have my life and emotions dictated by what's going on Did you just me. call me emotional? <laughs> You. I, and I'm thank not you. saying that I'm no, not No, that's a superpower. That is a superpower. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I guess I'm just in a space where I'm like, I'm good. But that so, to me, leads to the chaos and the uncertainty. And I don't want the urgency and the momentum of what we had in the beginning of the school year to die. That I'm down with. Right. But I think that's what can happen. That's what's that's what at stake when we just Amen. wait, 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 wait. Hurry up and wait. So we're not going to let that happen. We are not. We absolutely can't afford to let that happen. So to kick off the second season of Erased and starting the new year off right, we're going to reignite the fire that's in all of us. We need to stay focused on what's at stake for our children's experience in school. Amen. So this first episode, we're going to provide some actionable steps for those who want to make sure their schools know this is not the time to sit back and pat ourselves on the back for anything we've done in the first half of the school year. (laughs) It's time for us to let our schools know this is still a high priority. And we need to continue to push for positive change in our schools. So today we have a very esteemed guest, right? Yes. All right. You were just looking at me crazy. No, no, no. (laughs) So joining us for our conversation today, Dr. Elizabeth Denevi, co-founder of Teaching While White and director of the East Ed, which is a nonprofit agency that works with schools nationally to increase equity, promote diversity pedagogy, and implement strategic processes for growth and development. Much of her work is centered around helping schools understand the many elements of consciously and intentionally being anti-racist. 
Elizabeth is white, raising two multiracial sons with her husband, a former Black Panther. No, we are not talking about the Marvel character. <laughs> we are talking about, say it loud, raise your fist, Black Power, Black Panther. That's interesting that you do have to make that distinction just Correct. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Elizabeth. So thank you for joining us today, Elizabeth. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. You are our very first guests of 2021 and kicking off our oh. second season. Wow. Yes. No pressure. No I'm pressure. excited. That's great. <laughs> so uh, we like to get things started by asking our guests the last time they felt erased, diminished, not heard or seen because of your race, gender or socioeconomic situation. Thank you for asking. I just want to say just on the at the top here, I'm a huge fan of the podcast <laughs> and I really enjoy being a part of it. The notion of being erased actually happened to me this week, um, had an experience around being erased around my gender identity. I do a lot of leadership training and I, I work to coach leaders and also show up in leadership places and really had someone question my leadership based in my gender. So it was an interesting moment of feeling erased around who I was as being a female and a strong leader and being questioned about that. So I appreciate, appreciate you asking, but even telling you about it, like brings it right back. Um, so it's amazing how we feel these feelings of being diminished and erased. Uh, it's not just in our heads, it, it certainly lives in our, our bodies and our hearts as well. That's interesting. So this is this is an organization that retained you for your expertise, yeah. but then... Oh, how many times do we get retained for our expertise as people of color and women, and then someone in the room takes it upon themselves to diminish us, whether or not... Every single I mean, day, come, like, of course. Right, where's yeah. the surprise No, there? I'm not surprised. I just wanted to make sure I understood it. Well, and it's, it's interesting also because sometimes when I'm doing anti-racism work, um, I often have a co-facilitator who's also a white woman. And so it's interesting, like even trying to do anti-racist work, we get questioned about you know, our authority around women to be doing it. Do we really know what we're talking about? Well, how do we know? Aren't we just a little emotional about it? You know, something that if it were white men leading it, leads us so to wait, 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 wait. <laughs> so I gotta ask. So they get iffy about you being a woman leading anti-racist work and not that you're white. Man, there's so many layers to that. Exactly, right? And, and probably we've gotten in the door, um, Colette, you know, because of our whiteness, right? Because they'd rather hear it from us or they will they will listen to me. I mean, I often say, I don't think I say anything different than what people of color have been saying for 500 years. It's only because, frankly, I look like a nice middle-aged white lady. And I think that's why people are willing to listen. But at the end of the day, if it's too hard or feels too tough, it is interesting how then folks are willing to go to a sexism piece or other pieces about questioning us in other ways it's interesting how it intersects with yeah. other aspects of our identity. No, absolutely. So we were talking in our in our introduction, we we're talking a little bit about how there's just this lull right now, right? What, four months, five months left to the year? Still mm -hmm. time for a lot of work to be done. What can black parents do to amplify expectations, keeping their concerns and issues centered with particularly white school administrators in a constructive way and also in a way that prioritizes urgency? So very interesting right before i i'm talking to you all was talking with the school that was considering 
letting a black student go who had had COVID, had missed a lot of school, and they felt like the student had just missed too much school and they couldn't possibly catch the student up and, and had told the student the student was going to be released from the school and good luck finding another place to be. You know, we would hope maybe during COVID, during a national pandemic, maybe we'd have a little less racism. Unfortunately, I just see it all amping up. Um, and, 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 and at a moment where you think we could have maximum grace for this family, um, then watching that not happen. So I think for families to stay in communication with school, to remember that, that you know, schools are unhealthy if they're facing COVID. They're also unhealthy if racism is operating. And so making sure that we know that we keep asking for racial justice. It's not separate from what's happening around the pandemic and making sure that if children are struggling or something's happening or kids are missing school or whatever's going on, that we're staying in contact and keeping those relationships going. Um, this is the fourth black family that I've heard that has been asked to leave a school due to non-attendance and kids not showing up. And it makes me wonder how many white kids may not be showing up or struggling around the pandemic or facing issues of depression and anxiety or even being affected by COVID. And I want to know how many of those families are being asked to leave <laughs> uh, along with the black families. Kids are stressed. I mean, yeah. I'm watching. I have to I say that although that's are... not surprising. It is, though. It's, it's, it's not surprising. But what I will say is it's not what we're seeing. You know, the schools that we're dealing with locally yeah. and the schools that we're interacting oh with, I would be hard pressed. Well, that's why it's surprising. Dude, I mean, where's the humanity? Surprising. We're it's in it. Girl, it's 2021. It's COVID. Why are you surprised at any instance of deep racism? What? No, no, no. I'm not surprised. So what that. are you surprised about? I'm just surprised it's showing up that way. Really? Yes. Yeah. Say more on that. I mean, people are dying right and left. And you don't have the decency to have more compassion? No, I mean, look, like, at, look at history. When have people had compassion for, for black people to take them out of doing ratchet stuff? I'm not stuff? disagreeing with you. I'm you know not what I'm disagreeing saying? That's with why you. I'm like, why are you surprised But I'm that? surprised it's showing up in that way. I just, it, to not. your point, we're not seeing it out here. I'm not. If you're listening and that's happening to you, <laughs> you let us no, know. Seriously. <laughs> seriously. I often talk about this. There's been a lot of it, like we're either, you know, we're, we're on the COVID track, like we have to deal with COVID. And so then our diversity and equity work, you know, can we sustain those things together? And I'm just working hard with schools to say, look, they're one in the same, Amen. right? Schools, if we're talking about have healthy schools, healthy schools, again, they are free of racism and they're free of COVID. Like this Amen. is all about us being, being those kind of communities and making sure that we don't drop the ball on either front. So I want to ask more specifically, make sure that they stay on top of, of this work. How? You know, as, as a parent sitting listening right now, what's the move? Some people aren't going to feel comfortable calling schools out and saying you need to keep up this work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right, especially because we are so detached now as a community. Correct. A lot of the parent groups are sort of wondering what they can do in this time. Like a lot of them, if they had events they used to plan at school, they can't plan them anymore. And so actually I'm seeing parents taking the lead of maybe they want to watch a series together or they want to listen to a podcast hmm. together. I mean, I feel like the parent ed piece has really picked up yeah. because families are sort of like, we're trapped at home. We're not going anywhere. We're not doing anything. So I think it's neat to see the education piece for parents, I feel like has really ramped up. And as that starts to happen, that indirectly does put good pressure on the school because it helps get the parents making sure they're understanding what's happening. I also feel like staying in touch with any kind of diversity director and just seeing, are there things that that person needs? I'm watching a lot of the diversity and equity directors. Boy, do they have a lot on their shoulders right yeah. now, um, as, as do 
all the school administrators, but even maybe a, a specific shout out to those folks and saying, hey, I know how hard it is. I know you're you know, trying to do, is there anything we can do to support you in the community? Yeah, because oftentimes yeah. they don't ask, um, but when they are, when it comes directly to them, they might be willing, might be willing to help. But it's a great time for parents to get up to speed on making sure they know what they need to know about what's happening around equity and diversity. Amen. Amen. So proactive parent engagement. Especially our allies. Yep. Ask the questions. Oftentimes it's more palatable from you. Yep. Very important. Elizabeth, talk to us about Beyond the Book Club. Does it work? We we just did a podcast on this about the notion of you got you have to go beyond the book club and it has to be a beginning step, right? So I'm sort of like, great, people want to get together, but ultimately you have to change your behavior. And so I guess what's, you know, thinking if you're running a book club or if you're bringing parents together, what's going to be different? How are you going to be different based on what you've read in this book? I also think the book club conversations can't be these one-off conversations. You know, folks like read a book, we have one conversation, that was great, and then we keep it moving. I think yeah. seeing a lot of success with school communities that are taking on a book and doing what I call a slow read, where we might read a chapter, right? Instead of reading the whole thing and it's one and done, mm -hmm. we're going to say, we're going to spend the next six months reading Beverly Tatum's Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. We're going to start with the introduction, then we're going to read about our own racial identities, we're going to come back together. And I think sort of these sustained dives into these books so they're not one off. I have been changed by books. Dr. Tatum's book was one that I read and I remember thinking, why didn't anybody tell me about this? I didn't I didn't know yeah. about what she had written in the book and it it changed my trajectory of my career. So I'm a big believer, but it has to be about what's going to be different once you've read the book. So do you think schools, institutions should be guiding that work right now, given that so much is un unsettled and 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 again, we're at home? Or do you think the parents need to take the initiative and you know, uh, yes, in a perfect world, I want schools leading this. I was just saying with you all that I'm doing professional development all day every day with schools across the country. So certainly a lot of schools are seeing this as an opportunity to lean in and get this work done. So, you know, I think if you're a parent and you're not seeing it happen, if it's not obvious, if you ask questions, are we continuing our equity and diversity work? What's going on with that? Then I think, hey, can we be helpful? Is there something the parents can do? Could we sponsor a speaker? Could we sponsor think, a book club? Yeah, you know, schools think, have to lead it ultimately, right? I mean, that's that's what's hard about it. But I think parents are parents are so significant in exerting pressure, yeah. as are alumni. I think alumni are stepping into newly realized power in some ways. Yeah. And I, I wonder about the ability of parents also maybe to be a hub and start to connect with past parent parents of alumni, right? Yeah. And bringing those folks in and sort of extending that parent network. So it's not just current parents trying to deal with this, but it's extending those networks, deepening those networks. I think parents are the most important piece in combating the one and done. Absolutely. Uh, because a lot of schools are engaging in the, okay, we're going to bring in this person to do professional development today yeah. and yeah. then done. Yep. And it's important for parents to speak up and ask to have these elongated like the exposures. The slow read. I right. like that. So the, like yeah. Elizabeth DeNevy today. Mm -hmm. And then what? Right. 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 And what's, what's going to change? You know, the problem that we've seen, you know, I've been in private schools for almost 30 years. We talk a good game, right? We do a lot of professional development. I bet if you tol totaled up the amount of money and time that is put towards doing this kind of work, it would be significant. 
and schools have been unwilling to change the major components that would actually shift school culture, like the curriculum, like teacher evaluation processes, right? Oh, they're changing them now. A lot of well, the schools around us are. Well, that's that is that is great to hear. I mean, I'm really I'm really happy about it because that's the place that as soon as the curriculum has started to shift and the culture starts to change is usually when things get shut down. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's by an upset board that decides that, that this is not who we are. It could be because of administration. It be, could could be because of faculty. It also could be because of parents. I right? was just about um, to say, well, I think it's parents. And I think it's because students are coming home and saying, WTF. This yeah. reading list looks like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah. And they're also they're also coming home, especially, you know, white kids are coming home and they're saying, this is making me uncomfortable. Yes. I can't believe or I'm not going to read this. this. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so the parents are like, who are you to make? I'm not paying for you to make my kid uncomfortable. Right. And there's there's that whole piece about it. Yeah. I work with a lot of anti-racist white young folks who are trying to figure this out, want to know what their roles are. But I also have a lot who feel like they're the enemy. They feel like, you know, they're going to get in trouble if they say anything. I once had a young man who just said to me, you know, I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't. If I mm. say something, I'm the man and I'm talking too much. And if I don't say anything, then 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 I have no way in. So, so you Actually, have these young people who are really struggling to find their place to sort of navigate this terrain of racism and may not have adults who are helping to lead the way. I actually think it's generous to believe that good numbers of of white students are going home saying that they're feeling uncomfortable. I'd like to see more. I'd like to see way more. Yeah, even if if they feel that way. If my kids are a litmus test, when my kids come home and say that they're not, that they were uncomfortable with something that went down, my phone isn't ringing, my texts aren't buzzing, And even if the sentiment is there, we need the action. to go along with it. But you mentioned, you know, people finding their place in this. So as a black parent, what do you do when you're having conversations with your schools and you realize we're here we go, we're we're white centering again. How do I help them understand and refocus on on really what we need to be talking about as opposed to making maybe members in the community feel better? Comfortable. Yes. Or you have to slow down or we're doing the best we can, you know, please wait. And of yeah. course, you know, one of Dr. King, my, my favorite book of Dr. King's was why we can't wait. Like yeah. I'm done with people telling us. And that's what we've done to black parents. Right. I mean, that, that has been sort of the end just, just, you know, we're doing the best we can change takes a long time. Yes. Please be patient with us. You know, a colleague of mine, Paul Gorski calls that pacing for privilege, right? He, he writes about how the pace that. of change happens at the rate of those who are least invested in the change. Amen. Right? Unfortunately. Oh, I love yeah. that. So I'm how do you call people right for privilege? <laughs> yes. So how do you how privilege. do you get schools to acknowledge that and 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 really press forward the urgency? Like that is really part of my frustration, right? I mean, people have they awakened over the summer. Meanwhile, so I'm gonna push back on you. I don't uh, I don't need them to acknowledge. I need you to do better differently. Like um, that's a waste of time. I don't need you to acknowledge that racism exists. Et I need you to do I something. I need you to do something yes. about it. Because w- way too much time and energy is spent sitting around waiting for people to acknowledge. I don't need you to acknowledge this. My lived experience. I need you to get to work. Amen. Oh, did you just agree with something? No, and I forgot the point that I was actually making before you so rudely interrupted me. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> I believe I was saying my personal speaking for Lisa Johnson, <laughs> frustration, people think that this just started. How do we help them understand? I keep saying the urgency is so palpable. 
And I don't think the schools are, are getting it. And that, that worries me. I think that we're setting into the lull, the mid-school yep. year. Lull. I have a yep. pushback on that again. Love you. <sighs> mean it. I'll be your pushing toy. No, but, like, again, why put energy into getting people to acknowledge that? I'm not Get, asking no, them can to. Can I finish my sentence, I'm not please? asking anyone to acknowledge it. You I'm are. Saying, I'm not. Yes, you are. You I, just finished I saying. I am not saying that. I, I want... said I want to stress the urgency. That's not what you said. Yes, it is. Rewind. Can you, <laughs> can you play that back? <laughs> That's not what you said. <sighs> okay, what, so moving no, forward. But let me this finish what I was saying. part of the podcast. Right? I told you it's my favorite part <laughs> of the podcast. Let me finish what I, I was saying. In one corner, we have. Let me finish what I was saying. Yes. When are we as a people going to stop trying to get people to understand and ally ourselves with. When we're wait, in positions wait, of power. Hold on. And hold the chance let, to make change. Well, for someone who does not like to be rudely interrupted, you sure <laughs> are on your A game today. So what I'm saying to you is when are we going to stop? trying to convince people that our experience is real and work with the people who are already willing to acknowledge that it is to further the range of power and movement. And I think that has already been what's happening and we are where we are. Mm, I disagree. The, who holds the power? Not you and me. They don't look like you and me. Well, that's what I'm saying. So, so I need so them to understand the urgency. That's all I'm saying. Correct. And if you work with the people who already understand the urgency to amplify the voice of the urgency that is much better time and energy spent than trying to get people to understand your experience. So I can work with the one person who it's understands the urgency or I can work with the 20 others because we need it all. I'm just saying I'm riding with the people that are Dr. Denevi, back to you and your fabulous self. Okay, so you introduced me to the notion of the truth and reconciliation approach to creating and maintaining an anti-racist school community. Will you explain to our listeners what that is and how you see that working in our schools? Sure. So this is the lesson learned. I'm, I'm a historian, so it's a lesson learned from South Africa, and that's the notion of, of truth and reconciliation that they picked up about how they had to deal with apartheid, right? How do you acknowledge apartheid that happened and how do you build back a community? And it's sort of a bit of what both you and Colette are talking about, right? It's this both and notion. Um, and, and what I've seen with independent schools, again, you know, 30 years in here is an inability to really tell the truth about the harm that has been done around racism in the schools. I think there's been this general perception, honest perspective to black families, like you should be grateful yeah. for the education that you got. You should be grateful that your kids are here. Um, I think it's a big, sometimes can be a big diss to public schools or other schools, like sort of like lucky to be here, be grateful. And yes, there's been a little bit of a price to pay basically the ends justify the means, right. right? And I guess what I've seen over 30 years is too many black kids who paid too high a price for that education. Mm. And I worry about them coming out on the other side and I watch how they learned how to do school. Yeah. So they come through and they know all the right things to do, but man, when they graduate from your school, they are gone and they don't look back, yeah. right? And so I think this notion of truth and reconciliation really means in the face of black at, where you had this amazing speaking truth to power and you had alums and current students who were willing to come forward and say, this has been my experience. The step that I often see independent schools skip is trying to pause at the moment and be like, okay, here's the harm that we have heard has been done. Mm -hmm. I've heard this happened and this happened. What they generally tend to do is when all the harm's coming at them, 
unveil for you their 20 point plan, right, <laughs> of how they're gonna become an anti-racist institution. Mm -hmm. And so my fear is they're not really internalizing what the harm has been yeah. and they're spinning out more remedies, but I'm not convinced that they know the problem they're trying to solve. And they haven't internalized and really understood the cost, the real cost that has come to some of these black families. And, and it's not just the kids, right? It's the black right. families um, who have gone through. And so I'm really trying to get schools just to slow down a bit, still the urgency. Yeah. But I find when they have to look at, look you in the eye, Lisa, and say, okay, so I understand that your kid, that this happened and then this happened and this happened, did I get that right? Then they don't get to turn away. Yeah. Then it's sort of like, okay, so now you know, and yeah. you've said that you know, yep. That's where I'm seeing schools doing better because they sort of can't look themselves in the eye anymore mm -hmm. institutionally and pretend like, well, that was 20 years ago. Yes, Lisa, that was under a previous administration. Mm -hmm. We are firmly committed now, right? They have to own it as an institution as opposed to passing it off. And it's the same thing we saw around the sexual abuse scandal in a lot of ways too. It was a lot of schools being able to say that was a long time ago. I'm mm -hmm. so sorry that happened. That was all those people. It was in the past. We've we fixed things in the future. Like we're good now. And I think without that true, like, did I get this right? And that acknowledgement and owning it, yeah. but that, that it happened on their watch, right? Even if I wasn't here, I'm still accountable and I'm still responsible. And I think they've been dancing with the accountability yeah. question. So would you say that's the biggest piece missing with institutions that aren't able to follow through with their 20 point plans? And or if they keep that at the center of their work, is it a good way to have, I guess, like a North Star? always bringing you back to owning it and really authentically addressing it. And saying, did at the end of the day, are we going to get 18 months into this plan? And I want to know how it's solving for that harm. Um, I also want to know, how do you know more harm isn't continuing to happen, right? Yes. Because we have to put the plan in place. And so now everything's good. Do you have something in place to keep checking in and to say, well, are we really making a difference? That are we making, is what keeps me up at night, right? Because all these schools are in the middle of trying to figure it out. And every day students are in class, they're being harmed. Right. And so that's one of the questions that we have coming out of this. Like we're seeing a, a whole bunch of great 20 point plans. Yeah. How do we hold schools to task for being transparent and communicating with their communities about how the 20 point plans are going. Yeah. Two, two things I want to share. Anytime a school calls me and says, okay, Elizabeth, you know, we're ready. We, we are going to be an anti-racist school. Do you want to come and help me be anti-racist? My first question, can you talk to me about the ways you have been racist so that I can understand those? So we know what you're trying to undo, mm -hmm. solve for work against. And I can't tell you how much the schools stutter and fall over themselves and they can't answer that question. So that's the first thing. Can they answer the question? If you wanna be anti-racist, what's the racism that you're mm -hmm. trying to address? The second piece is independent schools don't often, not like public schools, they don't have to share their data around academics. Um, they don't have to make clear that if there are discrepancies and there are children being underserved, whether they are black students, other students of color, could be women, women in the STEM field, could be kids with um, disabilities, right? None of that's usually being shared. And so yeah. part of it is a transparency to say, you need to disaggregate all of your academic data by both race and gender. And let's see if yeah. you have any of the historical and current patterns around certain students being underserved. And I think when schools are willing to be explicit and to show you, well, here's the data. Yeah. So here's how black kids are doing. 
and here's how they've been doing over the last 10 years, and here's here's what's happening. Um, until they have that level of accountability, that's the only way you're ever gonna know. How do you do that with qualitative data, like emotions? I mean, that's a great question. We inter we interview families, we interview kids. I do qualitative research all the time. It's, it's the research on a sense of belonging. Um, you also can ask kids, we have scales and we have ways to interview kids and ask about their experience of bias and prejudice yeah. in the classroom. I mean, again, this is not rocket science. Wait, wait, wait. You wait. just said say that again. Argument. Oh, say that, that again. It's ding, not, ding, no, it's not ding, ding, ding. Yes. You, you're, you're crazy. You were saying it is rocket science. I was the one that no. said it's not rocket science. Lisa. No, no. What you Can tried to do was craft it in the end, like you agreed with no, me towards no, that no, end. No, it's no, not no, science, no, no. You know what? You make me go back and listen to that episode. Please do. But this and is what. Call me and apologize as no, soon as you're done. I believe I said it's not rocket science. I did say mm. where it becomes a challenge is we're talking about the yeah. lived experiences of people. No. of human beings right, no, who and then right, show right. up in a school and bring right. all of that and then it becomes right. difficult and it feels like it is rocket science feels right. it's not but it feels that right. way that's where you eventually got to i'm flicking when i originally right said <laughs> it's not uh, rocket science anyway dr denevi <laughs> well here's the piece here's the piece the way racism works it's a shapeshifter right and and racism as soon as you start to feel like you get your arms around it it shifts yes, and it moves. Yes. Right? So white supremacy is a beast. So I don't wanna, I don't, and the beast. 500 years that we've been up against it in this country, like I don't mean to say that's not easy, but what we can do to challenge racism, to make schools more inclusive, that is not rocket science. Amen. There are things that have been done. My there point. are things we know that's how to sad. do. I could teach you the skills. I can teach teachers how to do that. That, is, that is a skill and knowledge curriculum that we can do, but I don't want to minimize, what I'm not, what I, what I don't want to minimize is the effects of white supremacy mm -hmm. because it has the ability to bob and weave and come in and, and out. Overthrow and overthrow the capital. <laughs> so I'm going to say you're both are right. You both are right. Both of you are right. So what are you seeing happening in schools that you're happy to see that's working well right now? Schools that are looking at their data yeah. and they're interviewing families and asking about their experiences. So they're really trying to dig in deep and find out what's really happening for black kids in their school. I'm also really encouraged by schools that are seriously looking to change their teacher evaluation systems. Um, we have an evaluation system that we develop that's an anti-bias teacher evaluation. So you gotta evaluate everybody anyway. Why don't you do it with an anti-bias lens? Like again, not rocket science, right. Um, right. but we know how to do that. So that's not, do you know what to do? That's a will question. Like, are you Correct. willing to make how, the shifts? Are you willing to add the question? In the teacher evaluation form, is this teacher racist, sexist? <laughs> Are they impacting kids in harmful ways? Yeah. It's not hard. There's so much to this, though, that just requires school to become so much more transparent. And that is, I think, just culturally not who our schools have been. That's the big leap. And you have to remember that the majority of private schools were founded to be exclusive. Their, their whole nature was to keep certain folks out and they want to operate in that way. Right. And so generally you have, I can count on one hand, the number of schools that were founded intentionally to have black kids in them, right? right. So you are, you, you're trying to take an exclusive institution and make it inclusive. Um, so you're right. It's a huge shift that way. Um, but it is a question of will. Are you willing to 
challenge those norms, those assumptions, the ways we've always done it. Those folks are going to come back and say, I'm not going to give you the million dollars I was going to give you because this is not the school I went to. And are they willing to look at those folks and be like, fine, I'm not going to take your million dollars because we know when schools become more inclusive and actually start to do this work and become more transparent, actually more people give. Um, So it's this irony, right, that we're going to do this and we're going to lose money. I'm going to need you to say that again. (laughs) I'm going to need you. I feel like it's so short-sighted for schools not to understand that. It is. I'm going to give you a great example. So when um, I was teaching at a school, there was a stereotype going around that the black families weren't giving to the school at the same rates that the white families were. And it was always like, oh, well, you know, those families don't give because they can't give. And it was just all these racial stereotypes, Mm -hmm. deep prejudice, right? Black people couldn't possibly have money to give to schools and it's just so wrong. So these black families got together and they said, you know, you're expecting us to give in the ways that white families would give. And actually families of color often like to give in very different ways. We sometimes, we come from collectivist cultures. We might wanna give as a group. And so we had this we had this awesome black mom. She was on the board and she got for it and she said, you know what, I'm inviting all the black people over to my house and I'm going to pass the hat and let's see how much money we can make. They had somebody from the development office. The head of school was there for like 10 minutes. And then she was like, all right, make your pitch. Now go. And she passed the hat. She ended up raising almost a quarter million dollars from those black families and they wanted to give as the families of students of color. Mm-hmm. That, that's how they wanted to give their gift. They didn't want their name on a building. They didn't want any of that. But it was the moment where I really realized that the, you see how racism impacts every functioning of a school. Yep. And it really blinds, it really created blinders for a development office of thinking we shouldn't be, they weren't asking these families, they weren't being included, right? They weren't the families being taken out to lunch. And I think that is, I think that is shifting and I think that's cha- that has changed somewhat. But it is interesting to look culturally notions of philanthropy and how different communities like to give. And basically, it's been a white model um, in a lot of ways. And if that black mom hadn't been willing to come forward and open up her home, you know, I don't I don't know if that would have changed the game as much as it did. But it was a huge turning point for my school. And more people need to do things collectively like that and submit their demands with their quarter million dollar check. Right. Amen. Exactly. Amen. Exactly. So how are we impacted, do you think, about the fact that we are virtual now? We are in remote. How does this help or hurt our efforts? I think it's just up the stress and anxiety levels. And so to me, that's why I feel your urgency, because I feel like folks are so stressed already than if kids are having to then deal with racial stereotypes or racial prejudice. I'm just seeing it tip kids over the edge. I mean, obviously the rates of anxiety are skyrocketing in our schools for both the adults and the students. To me, it's continuing to focus on healthy communities and healthy relationships um, and really remembering that when we're fighting racism, we're building relationships, we're connecting. And I, I feel like in this pandemic, the most important thing to me is like less about the academic skills, because I think the students yeah. are still going to get that. And it's about people feeling like they have a sense of belonging and connectedness. And if you're not addressing racism, racial bias will get in the way of you having healthy relationships with folks, which is what I think we're going to need to get through at least the next six months. Amen. You have a title for your book? Um, Our working title right now is called Teaching While White. So that's based on our our blog and our podcast that I do with Jenna Chandler Ward. I'll let you know May 1st. It's due to the publisher by May 1st. I'm supposed to say that out loud because it's supposed to make you do it when you have to tell people that you're writing a book and it's due by May 1st. So then you'll call me May 1st and say, hey, Elizabeth, did you turn it in? I cannot wait to read it. Well, with all that you have going on, we certainly thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time to join us. Amen. Amen. My pleasure. I'm really grateful. 
like I said, I love the podcast and, and I think the support and the leadership that you're providing for families, because I, I sort of the grace that black families have and the willingness to trust schools, really, to me, it's an amazing thing that black families keep coming back to independent schools in a lot of ways, um, given what's happened. And I, I hope we're going to start to see a real seed change and you're going to start to be valued for the amazing families that you are and the trust you've put in these schools to take care of your precious kids in in a racist society so well, i'm i'm grateful you. for you all feel Amen. free to tell all your friends and colleagues about the e-race right <laughs> and I if do. you're listening thank you for listening remember to hit subscribe whenever you get a chance to listen we're gonna be back in two weeks two weeks this season we're going every other week folks we're gonna talk about a range of things the history of our schools we're gonna dive a little bit more into that the moral dilemma the impact and student experience more than 65 years after brown versus board of education what has changed so see you in the next episode of erased in two weeks remember to rate and review us on apple Podcasts, spotify and all other podcast platforms you can learn more at erasedpodcast.com erased with a c and the first episodes in the books